This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Welcome to the latest episode of AJ Bell's Money and Markets podcast. I'm Dan Coatesworth and this week I'll be explaining in simple terms why the problems with one of China's biggest property developers matters to investors around the world. Joining me on the podcast this week is Laura Souter, who's been busy looking at the utility space as households face a big hike in their energy costs. That's right. And later on in the show, I'm going to be explaining what happens if your energy company fails. Dan's also going to be looking at some important news from Netflix and why airline shares have burst into life. Yeah, Richard Penny from Crux Asset Management was such a good guest last week that we got him back again to give his views on markets in 2022. I'll also be looking at some of the big changes to the FTSE 100 next year. And there's some big news in the current account market, which I'll be discussing later. And Jenny Owen is here with some fantastic news. If you've got a spare £50,000 lying around and you want to buy an island, and who doesn't? But first (laughs) up, Dan, let's go to the big news of this week. So tell us why Evergrande has suddenly become a household name around the world and why it matters to us. Yeah, I reckon if you went back a couple of months ago, the average person, certainly in the UK, would not know this business. But it's it's one of China's biggest property developers, and it's been struggling to meet interest payments on more than $300 billion of debts. Let's just be Reg- clear on that. Billion, not million. Billion, yes, billion. Yeah. So, you know, regulators have warned that this could affect the country's financial system. You know, investors fear that this could hit the big banks exposed to Evergrande and the companies like it. So therefore, potentially, worst case scenario, causing some contagion in global markets. And so, as you might expect, this is quite a serious thing. And we've seen a bit of a wobble on stock markets around the world in the past week. Although it must be said, as we're recording this, they're starting to pick up again. So um, it's an ever moving feast. You know, each day there's something else that Evergrande's meant to be doing, i.e. paying back a bit more of its debt. Um, So the story might have changed slightly by the time you listen to this podcast. But at the moment, people remember 2008 when Lehman Brothers went bankrupt as a result of excessive subprime lending and how that really sort of affected the global financial system. And so people are sort of praying now we're not going to see another Lehman Brothers moment. So, you know, but there are some big problems here. Creditors of Evergrande are being offered unsold properties in lieu of payment. And, you know, China is kind of full of buildings where there's no one actually living in them and it's not actually clear that there'll ever be buyers for them. So the idea of giving an unsold property isn't really amazing collateral. Um, There's a capital economics estimate that estimated that um, Evergrande's pre-sale liability is the equivalent to about 1.4 million individual properties that have been committed to complete. So, you know, that's just you know, more than a million homes and apartments that either need building from scratch or at least finishing off um, just to honour these promises already made to purchasers. So, you know, some of these people have already paid in full or in part for them. So, you know, if there's a big problem here and Evergrande collapses, then you, know, you could see a property market shock in China. You know, that would be a really bad negative impact on consumer confidence. And, you know, you would have thought that would hit economic growth in the country. So it this is this is an issue. Um, I mean, I, I guess Laura, you, you, have you ever you were you know you come across Evergrande before, or is this sort of new to you as it is to to most people across the country? 
Yeah, I have no shame in admitting that I'd literally never heard of them. And now I feel like it's all over the news and all we're all hearing about. Yeah. Um, and so why, obviously, you um, talked about kind of the implications for China. Why might that have the, a ripple effect across the rest of the world? Is it because the creditors are spread everywhere? Well, it's 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 got it's it's like an octopus. Tentacles are everywhere here, uh, affecting investors. You know, if if you are a UK investor and you've got money in uh, an Asian focused fund, that's mm-hmm. likely to include Chinese stocks, and you know, potentially it's going to be including some some of the big names like AIA, Ping An, the insurance company, some of these big. Uh, tech stocks like Alibaba and Tencent, you know, all of these shares have been weak of late because people are worried, firstly, about China getting strict from a regulatory point of view. And now, of course, of, you know, is there going to be sort of wobbles to the financial system because of um, Evergrande? You know, can it stay alive? It's also bad news if you own shares in mining companies. So uh, a company like BHP, uh, one of the big companies in the FTSE 100, trading at a 10-month low now, commodities demands heavily tied to China. And, of course, it's driven by property construction. So if we, in the worst-case scenario, if we do see a property market wobble, perhaps there's going to be a lot less construction in the near term, and that would be terrible for mining companies. I'm certainly seeing really big downgrades to forecasts for things like the iron ore price, which is an important raw material. You know, analysts at Liberum reckon that the Chinese property sector accounts for 20% of global steel demand, 20% of copper demand, and just under 10% of aluminium demand. So, yeah, this really could be a big deal for the commodities market. And of course, if you own a fixed income ETF that invests in Asia, unfortunately, there could be a chance that that owns Evergrande bonds as well. So it all adds up to something that I think investors should be watching this very closely. But interestingly, I think the question people should be asking is why haven't global markets properly collapsed if this risk is real? And I think it's an expectation that the Chinese government will bail out Evergrande in some form. It, you know, The government doesn't want to be blamed for causing... Uh, wobbles across global financial systems. It's already had enough grief when people pointing the finger saying, well, you started COVID. So uh, as, you know, analysts at Citigroup think that the government might take action to perhaps buy the company some time and sort of help it to do a, a managed restructuring of its debt. But, you know, that still raises the risk that some banks could go to the wall. And, you know, if that's not enough to trouble you, obviously here at home, investors have been unsettled by the rising cost of food and fuel and you know, now heating their homes. And we'll come on to that in a second on the podcast. So, um, you know, there's definitely a lot of things for people to think about at the moment. So let's move on to the spike in energy prices and the knock-on effect that's had on many utility providers. So, Laura, why are energy prices going up so much at the moment? And, you know, is there anything that households should be doing? Yeah, so at the moment, it's kind of like a perfect storm of issues that's causing um, energy prices, well, particularly gas prices to go up. So economies have opened up a bit more and everyone's using a bit more gas. We're obviously also headed into winter when generally energy usage is higher. Um, At the same time, Russia has reduced its supply. Then we also had a fire in the cable bringing electricity from France. 
And it's not been very windy recently. So there's been less wind to provide wind power. So we put all of these things together and it means that gas prices have risen by quite a lot. Um, And that obviously has a big impact on people's bills, particularly, as I say, as we go into winter. So what do you think that um, it's just a case of trying to switch to uh, a cheaper tariff if you think the bill's going to go up or is it too late that you know providers across the board have um, just pushed up their prices yeah it's really difficult so um, normally our advice is always go to a fixed term deal if you've come off a fixed term deal and gone on to your provider's standard variable tariff then get off that as quickly as possible and find a, a fixed term deal and that'll help Um, get you a lower price and lock in those prices for often there for one year or two years. But we're in such a weird market at the moment that actually there are no fixed term deals available that are cheaper than standard variable rates at the moment. So what we normally think of as the provider's most expensive rate um, is actually cheaper than fixed term deals that you can get. And that's because we have something called the energy price cap, which I think we've talked about a while ago before. But this is essentially a rule that was brought in by Ofgem, the regulator of the energy market. Um, And it sets a cap on the amount that energy companies can charge for each unit of, um, of energy. And normally that sets a cap so that prices, obviously prices can't go higher than it, but that cap still is usually much more expensive than a fixed term deal. But because prices have risen so much recently, that cap is now offering the the cheapest rate that you can get in the market. Um, The latest, the cap is updated every six months. um, And the next uh, version of it comes in next Friday. And that means that for the average household with average usage, their energy bills are going to increase by £140. Um, but obviously, if you use more energy, then that's going to you're going to see a, a larger increase. Um, and so what you've got as your options is you can stick with the price cap on a standard variable rate. And that rate will stay for the next six months until the, the energy price cap is is next updated. Or you can choose to take a fixed term deal, which would be more expensive than that than that. Um, standard variable rate at the moment, but you will effectively be gambling that um, that will end up being cheaper than the next iteration of the of the price cap in six months time. And honestly, there's just no right answer to that. You kind of need a crystal ball to know what will happen to gas prices, um, what level that energy price cap will be set at. Um, so that's kind of a, judge- a personal judgment call, really. And so this must be leading to some of the smaller energy providers sort of struggling. Um, You know, if they can't rapidly put up their their prices, they're constrained in some sort of way. I'm hearing stories about some of them, um, you know, struggling to keep going and and, and having to be sort of the customers switch to somewhere else. I mean, what, what would happen if you found that your energy provider has literally just gone bust? Yeah, so it's already happened this week and we're expecting 
um, more to happen either later this week or or in the next couple of weeks. So at the moment, Ofgem, the regulator, says they've seen hundreds of thousands of customers affected already, and we're expecting more of that. So we've seen a massive boom in energy companies in recent years. So where previously we just had some of the giants in the sector, we've seen loads of people launch lots of names that most people have never heard of. Um, and these small companies are the ones that are failing or at risk of failing at the moment because they run on wafer thin margins and effectively they've agreed fixed term deals with customers and they're now paying far more for the gas that they're buying um, and they can't afford to stomach that difference. Um, they don't have the reserves in place and so ultimately they then fail. Um, but if your supplier fails, you don't need to panic. It's, you're not going to end up in a situation where your energy is cut off. Um, that is not at risk at all. What happens is the regulator works out a deal with another energy provider, generally tends to be one of the biggies. So um, we're talking like British Gas or um, one of the other big providers. And it will transfer all of the customers of the failed energy provider to the new firm. Um, any credit that you've got with the failed provider will also be transferred. Um, but the big issue is that you're going to get less of a good deal. Obviously, that provider failed because it couldn't afford to keep your good deal. And you that, that um, rate that you were being offered won't be honoured and you'll be moved to a new provider. You'll be offered a new deal there. Um, and once you've transferred, you can decide whether you want to take that deal or whether you want to switch again to a different provider. Um, but obviously, a lot of the really good rates have now dried up. Um, so you'll have to make a call at that point, what you're being offered, what's available on the open market, and make a decision on that. The few things that you do need to do if your provider fails is you should take a screenshot of your um, of your balance at the moment, so any credit that you've got on the account, and you should also take a picture or make a note of your meter reading um, because you'll need both of those things when you've transferred to the new provider. But effectively, the regulator will get in touch with you and say, hi, your energy company has failed. We're moving you to this provider um, and this, and they'll take care of that transfer for you. Well, uh, that's, uh, yeah, it sounds like a sort of a stressful experience for people. and um, But it, I guess it's reassuring that you're not going to have you know, the lights turned off while you're still sitting at home so exactly but i think the 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 bottom line is that everyone needs to prepare for higher energy costs whether that's immediately because of the price cap whether that's um shortly because your deal is going to end and you're going to find that costs are much more expensive um so you kind of need to budget for that and need to prepare for that so, right, let's look at other interesting news that happened this week involving some other big household names. So let's start with everyone's lockdown favourite, Netflix, which has struck a good deal this week, Dan. Yeah, so it's bought the company that manages the rights to Roald Dahl's stories. And I actually think this is a breakthrough moment for Netflix. You know, it's got its hands on a rich library of sort of weird and wonderful characters that it can create spin-off shows i know some of them have already been made into films it can remake those in a different way and perhaps more importantly it can also do things like um games and theater shows um merchandising this is sort of taking 
Netflix beyond its sort of court territory of simply you know making a TV show or film. And you know, I just look at the way that Disney bought the Star Wars Empire. I mean, at the time, people were sort of saying, "Oh, you paid loads of money for this." I'm not so sure, but you know, they really have sort of milked those um, intellectual property assets and done so much with it. So I just think that you know, Netflix has a huge opportunity to be creative and and to do lots of interesting things. I, I think that if you've got um, a title like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, that's loved around the world, and just imagine what Netflix can do with it. You know, if you think that parents subscribe to something like Disney Plus because it's got lots of content their children will watch over and over again, I think Netflix has now got the same thing here. You know, this is evergreen material, and I think people shouldn't underestimate that. You know, Laura, what's your favourite Roald Dahl book? I love them all. I'm such a Roald Dahl fan. I think The Twits is one of my favourite. And think of the kind of, you're talking about various things that they could do with it. Think how much they could do with The Twits. So good. <laughs> My my favorite is George's marvelous medicine. I think. Ah, another good one. Yeah, I mean they're they're so good. I mean, you look at something like Thomas the Tank Engine or Peppa Pig. Literally every time, every time a baby is born, that's you know it's almost guaranteed that as a future consumer of these evergreen material. And I just think that you know you get to children in primary school, they really start to you know enjoy books, and and inevitably Roald Dahl is one of those first things that they. It really stimulates them. And I think that Netflix are sitting on some absolutely golden property here. So, um, you know, for, for me, I think this is, you know, it, it's made me look at the business in a, in a different way. So um, thumbs up from me. And you know that it wasn't going to be long before I brought the podcast back to my favourite topic, which is holidays. Yes. <laughs> um, but I've been reading lots of like-minded people like me have been booking holidays in recent days so that's obviously good news for the airline sector isn't it Dan? Yeah so I mean investors have been watching the news very closely because obviously the the UK government relaxing international travel rules and you know news that vaccinated passengers from the UK and the EU can go to the US of course this is a put a real light underneath um, shares in many airline companies particularly British Airways owner, International Consolidated Airlines. Now, its shares are up by 25% in five days. I mean, this is... Wow. Yeah, this is pretty amazing. Well, you might say, well, it's been sitting in the doldrums for ages. It's just trying to finally start its recovery that so many industries have been doing for the last year. But, you know, I think transatlantic travel between London and New York, such a key route for the airline industry. And, you know, IAG has been, you know, made a lot of money there and and anything... the opportunity to now start making money again is it got to be good for its earnings. And so you've got European airlines like Lufthansa and Air France, KLM, also reliant on transatlantic travel and their share prices have been going up as well. From an investor point of view, though, obviously this is good news and I don't want to be a dampener on good news. But is it going to take a lot of these airlines a long time to recover from a lot of the costs and the losses that they've seen since, um, I guess, since the start of last March? Yeah, I mean, you might if you look at the industry now, you might see figures that show that their planes are actually quite full. But what you want to think about is that the capacity has been greatly reduced. So they've got far fewer planes per airline flying in the sky. Um, what they really need is to try and get that all their sort of fleet back up in the air. Um, yeah, I think it could be at least another year before we see sort of much stronger earnings. But 
um, you know, as soon as the rules become simpler or even go away completely in terms of you know, COVID related restrictions is, is when people can get their head around it. But, you know, I, I've got a flight coming up soon um, and, and I'm, I'm just a bit scared to sit down and try and understand all the, the rules and the things you have to do first um, to get on with it. I'm sort of, what, what about you, Laura? Are you going away this year or have you booked far, far into the future or? Yeah, I'm going away this year, but I know what you mean about trying to navigate the rules. So my parents recently drove from the UK to Portugal, and so they then had to navigate all of the rules of of going into all those different countries, driving along the way. And then I had to almost check their working because there's no easy way of just going to a one-stop shop and, and working out what your rules are. And it's quite stressful when that's on you as a, as a holidaymaker. I can see why lots of people might have delayed their plans yeah so last week we had a brilliant interview with Richard Penny from Crux UK Special Situations Fund and he talked about his views of what's happening in the markets now and some of the stocks that were catching his eye but we're going to go back to him now to discuss what he thinks might happen in 2022 which scarily isn't that far away so you've got a value bias so you should have enjoyed the rally in value stocks, which began last November. But that rally seems to have petered out over the summer. Do you think the market is now favouring quality stocks, which trade on high ratings once again, perhaps in the search for dependable earnings growth? Yeah, I think we're moving more to a a stock picker's market. So I I think it's very difficult to generalise and say either value is going to do well or growth is going to do do well. And in fact, our our fund does do well when when the value bias kicks in, but I tend to be growth at a reasonable price or, or value stocks with a catalyst. And um, perhaps just to explain that, um, you know, if you buy a growth company but it starts at a very high valuation, it, it can grow and the share price sometimes can go down. Uh, similarly, you can buy a very cheap, lowly priced business, but if if its profits don't make progress. It can stay very lowly priced, so we are. That's why I say we look for a catalyst on the value stocks, which tend to be the larger companies. It's, that could be a change of management, it might be a change of listing, um, a refinancing, or with the growth stocks. Um, if you buy them cheaply enough, when they do grow, and maybe the profits can grow faster than the revenues, um, you get really good share price performance. So, in terms of a shift back to quality. A lot of those quality stocks are synonymous with so-called bond proxies, which tend to do well when interest rates go down. I think it's difficult to see how interest rates really will go down much further from where we are, where they're incredibly low. So, um, you know, I think if anything, on a, on a short to medium term view, the UK stock market is now looking more at the cyclical recovery and domestic earnings and, and defences might not be the place to be there. A lot of those defensive stocks are dollar earners, and they were very strong um, during the Brexit uncertainty because of the weakness of the pound. The pound is a lot more stable now and has, to some extent, improved. And that brings some of the sort of non-defensive <coughs> earnings sort of back into play. And, and August was pretty strong for the, for the, the, the cyclical stocks um, as opposed to perhaps the quality more defensive names. Yeah. So we've got... You know, we're in the final sort of run of 2021 now and investors have got their eyes on next year trying to work out whether it's going to be uh, you know an- another successful year for businesses or whether you know things like inflation and 
um, you know, potentially rising rates and um, sort of increased regulation is all going to make things a bit more nasty. Where do you see markets going in 2022? Yeah, I think we recognize there's, there's quite a lot of things that we can't predict um, for 2022 around the economy, around viruses and things. But but something that has worked really well in the past is, is um, a valuation metric called the cyclically adjusted PE. It's been far more successful than predicting economies and then predicting earnings off it. Now, the cyclically adjusted PE takes an average of the 10 years, last 10 years earnings and divides it by the current market level. And in the UK, it shows it shows the UK and indeed to some extent Europe as, as cheap on that, on that basis. Um, so this does recognize that we might know not know exactly what next year is going to do and uh, there may be some uncertainty around it. But it does show that the earnings power of the UK economy is probably underpriced here. I think that is to some extent a reflection of um, the UK moving to a 50-year low against the rest of the world equities uh, during the Brexit process, from which it hasn't recovered at all very much. So the UK, I think, is cheap. So that suggests that for the long term, it's a market to buy. And this cyclically adjusted PE, when the UK has been at this level, has given you double-digit returns for the next 15 years. So, you know, by all means, you wouldn't put all your money into the market at any given point in time. You might might save some for if there's a, a, a pullback in the markets. But it, but it does feel like the, the long-established principle of being, you know, long of equities, um, if you've got anything over a sort of three to five year time horizon, is the right place to be and that the UK is a good place. Well, brilliant. Richard, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. So Richard made some interesting points and I know from the feedback we received that our listeners really enjoy the fund managers that we get on the show. Yeah, that's right. We wanted to know who else you'd like to have on the podcast send us an email with your wish list of guests and we'll do our best to get them on the podcast. So the email is podcast at ajbell.co.uk or you can find myself or Laura on Twitter and just send us a message there. So Laura, when was the last time you changed your bank account? Uh, Fairly recently, I did a switch so that I could get a switching bonus of £100 and I do not know what I spent that money on. Oh, my God. I'm quite surprised. I thought you'd be very traditional like most people and stick with the same banking provider that they've had since a kid. We tend to find that if you talk about subjects and know all about it, uh, you you then get under the the, the truth of it. These these sort of finance experts never do what they they preach. So um, like doctors being bad patients. (laughs) I am a very good patient. (laughs) <laughs> so you, I mean, so you've got some news about a new market entrant, which is trying to actually lure customers away from other banks. What's been going on? Yeah, so you're right. Lots of people just don't switch their accounts, and so I've got an interesting factoid for you that Barclays, HSBC, Lloyd's, and NatWest between them control seven in ten current accounts in the UK. Wow! And that's despite the big boom in a lot of these kind of startup digital banks in recent years. Um. But yeah, we've got a new entrant to the market, which I'm hoping will shake up the market a bit and drive up a bit of competition. So obviously on the podcast, 
Um, we talked a lot about Goldman Sachs and its launch of Marcus a few years ago, which was into the savings account market rather than current account. But that really shook up the UK savings market. It caused a bit of a rates war, um, really drove interest rates up, which was great for consumers. So, I mean, I don't want to peg too much hope on this, but I have high hopes because we now have another US giant coming into the market and launching here. So Chase... Um, which is part of J.P. Morgan Chase in the U.S., is coming to the U.K. and it's launching a bank and it's starting with a current account. Um, and already it looks pretty promising. So the current account pays 1% cash back on anything that you spend on your debit card, and that is uncapped. Um, so it's unlimited the amount of cash back you can get. So to put that into context, if you spent £1,000 a month on your card, you would get £10 back. Um, and what I think is really interesting is that there's no restrictions on this. So quite often with current accounts at the moment, they'll offer a cashback offer, for example, but you'll have to pay a fee for the account or you have to um, ensure that you've got two direct debits coming out of it or you have to have a minimum account balance or a minimum amount going into the account each month. This new account has none of that. There's no fees, no direct debits, no need to pay in a certain amount. So that makes it more attractive for people um, and it's easier than um, having to kind of meet all of these requirements. Um, one of the other perks of it is that you can get a 5% savings rate, which is insane in comparison to savings rates at the moment, but there is a catch on this one. That's only on roundup savings. So um, people might have used these already. They're features that quite a lot of banks offer at the moment where for every amount that you spend, they round it up to the nearest pound and they funnel that extra few pence into a savings account. And it's kind of like an automatic savings. So for example, if you spent £5.75 on your lunch, um, then it would round it up to £6 and 25p would be shuttled off into a savings account and at the end of the month you'd hopefully be amazed at how much you've magically saved um so they're paying a five percent interest rate on those savings which is great rate but also it's not going to be on massive amounts of money so there's you're not going to make a king's ransom on that um it's got a few other things um you can spend for free abroad it's got an app that's got lots of fancy gizmos that helps you with budgeting and money saving. Um, the big drawback is that it doesn't have an overdraft, so it's no use for anyone who occasionally dips into their overdraft. But they are launching more stuff soon, and they've got intentions to launch the whole range of things that a bank would offer, so savings accounts, mortgages, overdrafts, things like that. Well, all these current accounts that launch, they always intrigue me, but it doesn't take long for them to change the terms and conditions I remember the yeah. Santander had that really generous, um, is it the one, two, three account where it paid lots yeah. of money on the current account and then it sort of t withdrew it all the perks and so people going, oh, you know, they, they've got me in through the door, but now I don't really want to stay with them. So Yeah, um, and that was the one, two, three account was um, big and, and loads of people moved to it and they got lots of money from that. So the... The cashback offer and the savings rate with this account is for 12 months, so you know that they're not going to withdraw it. Um, but after the year, they might do, because essentially banks want to get in lots of customers, get in lots of money, um, and then once they've reached the limit of what they want, um, then they'll start winding back those offers. So. so we've got a couple more bits for this week's podcast. The first is something for people to think about if they own a FTSE 100 tracker fund. So Dan, what do they need to think about? Well, there's going to be quite a few 
big changes to the FTSE 100. Uh, Prudential has just demerged its US business, Jackson, um, which means that sort of the value of the remaining bit of the company has shrunk a bit. Now, that's important because effectively it means the insurance sector is going to account for a smaller percentage of the FTSE 100. And so what we're going to see in the coming months, probably mostly in 2022, is some big changes to the index because BHP, the mining company, is uh, no longer going to qualify for the index. It's, it's doing some technical stuff, which means its main listing will be in Australia, and therefore it won't qualify anymore for the FTSE. So that's in the mining sector. A big chunk of the mining sector will therefore essentially disappear in terms of the representation of the FTSE 100 index. And GlaxoSmithKline is going to split into two businesses. So at the moment, it's healthcare. It's going to spin off the consumer goods interest. And what will happen is you've got um, healthcare will then be a much smaller proportion of the overall FTSE 100 and consumer stuff will be much bigger. So this is sort of a natural evolution of the market. But the reason why it matters is because the, the FTSE 100 is an index of the 100 biggest companies on the London market. Um, and it's, it's weighted by market value. So if you've got something like HSBC, which is one of the big, big banking companies, um, it accounts for a much bigger percentage of the overall index. And therefore, whatever happens to HSBC, share price will have a much bigger influence on the overall FTSE 100. Uh, so if you've got... Um, a market that has historically been known as sort of old economy. So you've got lots of banks and mining companies in there. Well, it's going through this natural evolution um, away perhaps from, you know, the, the big resources representation. And, you know, I would have thought in five, 10 years time, you'll see much sort of more sort of tech businesses in there. So I just think it will change the way people look at it. So if you talk about what's happening with the UK stocks, um, People really, what they mean is what's happening with the FTSE 100 index. So um, I just think if you've got a tracker fund and you want to know what are the drivers behind the performance of the you know, a FTSE 100 tracker, you're going to have to look at the index and say, well, it, its composition is changing. And so we did a bit of work on this in Shares Magazine. Um, and we sort of trying to work out who could be the next contenders to join the market, not necessarily immediately, but you know, in the coming year or two years. Um, and we think that there's, based on sort of current trajectory of earnings and strategy, that budget airline Wizz Air could easily be a FTSE 100 company, cybersecurity business Dark Trace, um, the IT expert Softcat, and even there's an industrial company called Spectrus in there that does lots of controls and testing. Um, and then longer term, potentially something like Games Workshop, which is, you know, you might be surprised, but it's getting bigger and bigger. Um, and it's just got lots of plans to keep growing those earnings. So I thought this is just a, just an interesting thing to, to think about. But what we'd love is to, for you to to make some suggestions as listeners for who you think perhaps could be a future FTSE 100 contender. Email us at podcast at ajbell.co.uk and we'll read out some of the best ones in a future episode. And I think it would just be a nice little um, conversation for us to have. So, listeners, I'm sure you all dream of owning your own slice of paradise, and now is your chance to make it happen. So Jen's been scouring the real estate section of the Sunday papers and has spotted a brilliant opportunity, but for a fairly budget price, Jen. 
Yeah, so last week you could buy a beach hut for half a million pounds, but this week you could bag an entire island for a tenth of the price. It's called the island of Candis, and it's a 25-minute boat ride from northwest mainland Scotland. The only real problem is there's no house or any buildings on the island, so you'll need to be a keen camper with a sturdy tent to kip in. Offers are currently being considered over £50,000 for the 22-acre island, and apparently porpoises, dolphins, whales and otters can be frequently seen from the island. For a similar price, you could buy a three-bed house in Grimsby or Carlisle, a Mercedes E-Class estate, or even a three-carat diamond. But I'm sure there are some money market listeners who'd love the idea of a secluded island all for themselves. I love that idea. I feel like it's way more impressive to say that you own an island rather than owning some Mercedes car. (laughs) Yes, I think I agree. I would quite like to buy an island. So, um... Good. That's all from us this week. Remember to let us know which guest you'd like to hear on the show and for your suggestions for future FTSE 100 candidates. We'd also really appreciate it if you could leave a review of the show on your podcast platform of choice. Catch you next time. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor.